encourage you again to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. And as you turn there, let me pray for us as we look at God's Word together. Father, we want to acknowledge how desperate we are right now to see and behold Jesus. There is so much that has happened in this past week, Lord. Things that are going on in the States with death, with riots, um, hatred, injustice. There's stuff going on with COVID-19. There's just so many things happening. And Lord, right now, probably many of us are feeling discouraged, feeling a level of despair, wondering when things will get better, wondering when justice will finally reign. And so Lord, what we need now more than ever is to focus our minds and our hearts upon Jesus. We need him now. We need to see his power. We need to see his humility. We need to see his compassion, his wisdom, his grace, his righteousness, his holy hatred for sin, his love for sinners. So Lord, please, by your spirit, as we look at this passage in Mark chapter 5, help us to behold Jesus in all of who he is. Help us to narrow our thinking, to focus our minds upon him, to not allow the distractions of the world right now to, to distract us from treasuring and loving Christ. Help us, Lord, in this time. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the screw tape letters written by C.S. Lewis, if you're not familiar with the screw tape letters, it's it's really a, a book written by C.S. Lewis about um, two demons. One demon, screw tape, is is training the other demon, Wormwood, on how to basically allure humans, patients, clients, so to speak, into uh, basically abandoning God or not living for God and ultimately falling under the reign of Satan. And so it's really a dialogue or it's, it's thoughts that Screwtape has for Wormwood to help him on how to best manipulate, deceive, lead astray his patient, the, the specific individual that he's been given the task of trying to get to rebel against God. And C.S. Lewis captures so well in this book, Satan's Tactics. But there's a section in the book where he specifically captures so well the way in which Satan tries to work in our modernist, materialist society. Here in this passage that I'm about to read, Screwtape is instructing Wormwood on whether his patient, that is the human he's trying to influence for evil, should be aware of the demonic's existence, the demon's existence, Wormwood specifically. So this is what Screwtape says to his uh, trainee, Wormwood, the other demon. I wonder you should ask me whether it is essential to keep the patient, that is the human, in ignorance of your own existence. That question, at least for the present phase of the struggle, has been answered by the high command, that is Satan. 
Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. Of course, this has not always been so. We are really faced with a crucial dilemma. When the humans disbelieve in our existence, we lose all the pleasing results of direct terrorism and we make no magician. On the other hand, when they believe in us, we cannot make them materialists and skeptics. I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. Satan uses both tactics that C.S. Lewis describes here in our world today, right? Direct terrorism. He, he uses fear to control people, but he also uses disbelief, non-existence. They, that, that, that if he can convince the world that the spiritual realm doesn't exist, then that's also a win. And we see this working out in our own society. See, on the one hand, our society mocks the idea of the spiritual realm. They, they mock the idea of the demonic by, by treating the devil as, as no more than as a red figure with horns and a pitchfork. Shows like, um, like Lucifer, who abandons hell for L.A. Of course, all of us would do that, where he runs his own nightclub and becomes a consultant to the LAPD. So on the one hand, our culture tends to mock the, the spiritual demonic realm. We just think it's, it's just made up fairy tale stories. But I've also seen the fear mongering tactics of Satan as well in our society. Whatever the case may be, this story in Mark chapter five confronts our material modern sensibilities we want to dismiss such ideas like what we see in Mark 5 as, as mere ghost stories used to scare people. But there's no real validity to such experiences. Or we want to reduce such things to mere psychological breakdowns of the brain. A breaking down of the mind where, where reason has altogether vanished and, and ins insanity has taken hold. And there is, no doubt, much evidence for mental breakdown. It's not less than that, but the scripture would tell us that it can be more than that. You see, we are confronted in this passage with the reality of a dark, present evil. An evil that seeks to prey upon people, to devour and enslave people. This present dark evil seeks to tear from you all dignity, to destroy your humanity, and to see you, in one sense, become animalistic. This dark evil has one goal, and that is tyranny, chaos, and death. You see, we're confronted with the fact that there are spiritual forces in our world that are powerful, some with evil intentions and other with good intentions. We're not alone. 
But this passage also tells us, that, tells us that there is one who is superior to all powers and forces in our world. One whose voice has the power to control and destroy all spiritual beings. As we saw last week, Jesus, he left the crowds with his disciples to cross the sea to get to the other side. And while they were journeying to the other side, a, a horrific storm came up. And Jesus, with his mere words, rebuked the wind and the sea, and it was completely calm. So we saw from that story Jesus' power over nature. And here in Mark chapter 5, we see Jesus' power specifically over the demonic. So we're told they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Now this would have predominantly been Gentile territory. And the pigs in the story are evidence of this. The Jews would never have herded pigs because they were considered unclean according to Levitical law. And most likely, the, the man in this story would have also been a Gentile. And so we already see early on in the gospel narrative that Jesus is already hinting at that he has a purpose for the Gentiles. So Jesus reaches the other side of the sea, and we're told that when he stepped out of the boat, immediately this man with an unclean spirit living in the tombs approached him. A confrontation is about to go down between two spiritual powers. But before the confrontation, Mark gives us a description of the man. Look at verses 3 to 5. He, that is this man, lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So really what you see here is a man who lived like an animal. He was amongst the tombs. He was residing in the midst of the dead. He had a supernatural strength. No one could bind him. He, he was able to wrench the chains apart, breaking the shackles in pieces. It's really important we see this, that, that Mark tells us that no one had the strength to subdue him. That's important to see because, as we'll see, Jesus is the one individual who has the strength to subdue him. So he's supernaturally strong. He's violent. But we also see that he's in anguish, both mentally and physically. He's crying out in anguish, and he's cutting himself. He's, he's really practicing self-harm. Here's a picture of a man who is demonized. We often will use the word demon possession, but I think the New Testament, the, the better word is demonized. He is demonized. He's under the influence of demonic powers. Satan has taken control of his life, and the goal is self-destruction. You know, we see similar accounts in the New Testament where both brute strength, but also self-harm, are connected to demonization. So for example, in Mark chapter 9, 20 to 22, uh, 
the, there's this argument going on between the disciples and this man who, who brings his son to them and they can't cast out the demon. And this is what we read. And they brought the boy to him. That is, they brought the boy to Jesus. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And then hear this. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. So this child has a demon, and this demon has actually attempted to cast this child into the fire and into the water to destroy him. Self-harm, trying to bring harm to this individual. In Acts 19, 13 to 16, it's this incredible thing that's happening in Ephesus God is using Paul in incredible ways. People are being healed merely by touching the handkerchief of Paul. And there's some itinerant Jewish, Jewish exorcists who aren't believers, and they see Paul's power in Jesus' name. They see his power to cast out demons in Jesus' name. So they start using Jesus' name in their attempts to cast out demons. And this is what we read. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by, by, the, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. So, in all three of these accounts, you see that the, the demonic will often manifest itself by, by causing the individual that he's infiltrated to inflict himself, but also with sheer brute strength to bring harm to others. You see, dealing with the demonic is no laughing matter. We must, it, we must not give too much credit to the demonic, but we also must not take the demonic lightly. I think C.S. Lewis stated this well, where he said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. See, we, we ought not be so focused on the, the demonic, but we ought, also ought to realize that the demonic is real and people are demonized. There are people who are demonized, even in our society. This man is under the control and reign of Satan. And the picture that we are given of him, he, he's become animalistic. He is unable to help himself. Those who have tried have failed. But today will be his day of deliverance. For he will encounter a man who has the power to combat the demonic and the compassion to deliver him from darkness. But before we get there, we simply need to ask, why does the demonic seek to cause chaos in the lives of humans? 
Why is the demonic out to destroy human life? Well, the simple answer is this. Satan hates and despises God. And therefore, Satan hates and despises all things that in some form or another reflect the glory of God. Humanity is God's image bearers. And if Satan can mar that image, he will do whatever is necessary for that to take place. If he can take a human made in the image of God and turn him into a beast, he will do it with pleasure. All that God is for, Satan is against. So after Mark gives a description of this man, we now encounter the confrontation between the demonic and Jesus. Jesus and his disciples get off the boat, and in verse 6, this man sees Jesus from afar, and he runs to him and falls down before him. It's as though some power has drawn him to Jesus, for why would the demonic run to Jesus unless he's trying to prevent Jesus from accomplishing his purposes? But he falls down before Jesus, and then in verse 7, he cries out with a loud voice. Literally, the, the idea here is he screamed a scream that, was, that wasn't natural. It was an abnormal scream, kind of like Smeagol when he loses the ring in Lord of the Rings. So after he makes this cry, he then begins to speak, specifically questioning Jesus. Look at verse 7. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Now this question isn't a question of ignorance. What are you going to do with me, Jesus? No, no. This is a question of defensiveness and defiance. The idea is, why do you interfere with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? And notice, he knows who Jesus is. And just like the, the former demonic counters, he tries his last-ditch effort at prevailing against Jesus. He knows, however, he's at the mercy of Jesus. And that's why he declares, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. He's invoking God himself in an attempt to prevent Jesus from causing him harm. You see, the demonic knows that there's a superior power when he sees Christ, but he also knows that this superior power is hostile towards him. Christ is hostile towards the demonic realm. So he's urging that Jesus not torment him, and in verse 8 we're told why. Look at verse 8. For he was saying to him, that is, Jesus was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So it seems that, that Jesus had actually already been commanding the demonic to come out of the man, though we're not told when this began. And in verse 9, Jesus now asks the man what his name is, and the man's response would be one of shock. Not to Jesus, but most definitely his disciples and us as his readers. So look at what he says in verse 9. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, a Roman legion consisted of about 6,000 foot, foot soldiers 
plus 120 horsemen. Now that doesn't mean that there were 6,120 demons in this man. The point is simply this, this man has been infiltrated by thousands of demons. There are many people who have experienced demonization and have had one or two demons or even seven demons. But this man has been demonized by thousands. This possibly explains why he was so strong physically. And it also explains why all the pigs jumped off a cliff to their death. See, despite the fact that there are so many demons, we need to see that they are in terror before Jesus. And they plead before Jesus like a peasant pleading for his life before a king. Look at verse 10 and 11. Look at the language, the, the language of begging. Look at verse 10 and 11. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. You see, they know their end is inevitable. They know they're not able to remain in this man to torment him any longer because they know that Jesus will deliver this man. And they're begging Jesus not to send them out of the country. And instead, they, they beg him to enter the herd of pigs. In other words, the inevitable is before them. So how does Jesus respond to their begging? Well, look at verse 13. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. He gave them permission. I want you to see the significance of those words. Remember, we're told at the beginning of this story that no one could bind this man, that he broke chains and shackles. There was no one who was able to subdue him. And now Jesus is on the scene, and the very one who couldn't be subdued is begging Jesus and is granted permission from Jesus. In other words, these demons have been reminded of the pecking order. They are in the presence of the Son of the Most High God, and their only option is to beg. Remember, Satan could only do to Job what God permitted. This legion of demons had to get permission from Jesus before they entered the herd of pigs. Now we need to ask, why did Jesus give them permission to enter the pigs? What's the whole point of the pig scene? Well, there's several possibilities. None of them are actually all that clear because the text really doesn't fully explain why. But I do think there are two ideas that, that hold a level of legitimacy. First, the, the pigs in Jewish thinking represented that which was unclean. The demonic is the epitome of the unclean. And so it's possible that Jesus is permitting them to enter the pigs to remind the demonic of their own filth.
go and be unclean with the unclean, so to speak. The other reason why Jesus might have allowed this was to make visible what was, in one sense, invisible. See, though this man being delivered is evidence enough, it's visible that this man was changed, it's possible that Jesus wants to make the visible clear that the demonic has left the man and that the demonic has done exactly what Jesus permitted them to do. He commanded them or he let them go to the pigs and they went to the pigs and they drowned themselves. Whatever the case may be, Jesus has successfully delivered this man from demonic oppression. And in verses 14 to 17, we see the response of the herdsmen and also the people in the city and in the country. So look at verses 14 and 17. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. So the herdsmen, they run off because they've just seen their pigs basically commit suicide. And they begin to spread the word of what happened. And, and the people go out to see what they were told. And what is it that they saw? They saw the former demon-possessed man sitting there, clothed and in his right, man, right mind, literally having a sound mind. Here was a man who had been delivered, but not just delivered, but also restored. His humanity was given back to him. His dignity and worth was re-established. This is what Jesus does. He is able to take the most vile creatures and restore them to their former glory and dignity. Dare I say, even a greater glory and dignity. You see, you know what this, this story tells me? What this story of this man tells me? Is that the most wretched, filthy individuals can experience the transforming power of Jesus so that what, what once defined you no longer has to anymore. See, Jesus not only has the power to transform such people, but he also has the purpose and compassion to do so. I mean, why did Jesus request to go across the sea in the first place? If not for the sole purpose of delivering a man who had been in the clutches of Satan for far too long. Jesus went across the sea because he had purpose there. And he showed not only his power, but his compassion towards this man. And friend, no matter how filthy you are, Jesus has the power to transform you. To make you whole, so that you might be clothed and in your right mind. Now it's interesting that... When the people see the man in his right mind, we're told in verse 15 that they were afraid. Why were they afraid? 
Well, most likely many of these people were possibly some of the people who had tried to subdue the man previously. They saw the power and strength of this man firsthand. And most likely they would have been terrified because of the demonic oppression of this man. But now a superior power in Jesus has entered into their presence and it creates fear. Even a greater power than what they saw before. You see, in one sense, they respond rightly because the supernatural is amongst them. The presence of divine power has come to where they are, and this always creates a response of fear. But instead of allowing their fear to lead them to reverence and worship, praise over the fact that, that Jesus had delivered this man from demonic oppression, they instead begged Jesus to depart from their region. As we saw in verse 16 to 17, and those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. So they were afraid and that's why they begged him to depart. But it's also possible that they had also other motives for wanting Jesus to leave. Jesus just allowed a legion of demons to kill thousands of their pigs. Jesus just disrupted economic benefit. This would have been a huge blow to their commerce. And maybe their love for what they had pushed Jesus away because they knew he would disrupt their lives. That was the response of the people. But there was also the response of the healed man, the delivered man. And his response to Jesus, Jesus, I think, captures so well what true conversion is. So look at verses 18 to 20. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. In verse 18, we see that he expresses his desire to be with Jesus. This is the natural response of the individual who has been transformed by the power and grace of Jesus. He wants to be with him. Friend, does, does that describe you? Would you describe yourself as one who wants to be with Jesus? To, to hear his voice and see his face, does this describe you? If someone were to, to look at your life, would they conclude this about you, that you just want to be with Jesus? So this redeemed man desires to be with Jesus, but he also not only wants to be with Jesus, he also shows obedience to Jesus. 
See, though he requested to be with Jesus, Jesus did not actually permit this to happen, but rather he commissioned him to be his witness. In one sense, here is the first missionary in the Gospels. Look at verse 19 again, right? And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had, and how he has had mercy on you. And what does the man do? Well, we're told in verse 20 that he does exactly what Jesus commanded. He goes and begins to proclaim in the Decapolis, that is the ten cities in that region, how much Jesus had done for him. See, this to me is a picture of true conversion. This is true salvation. A man who was under the bondage of sin and Satan was delivered by the powerful, gracious hand of Jesus. And his response is to be with Jesus and also obedience to Jesus. He tells to the people all that Christ had done for him and everyone marveled. What about you? What about me? When was the last time we told someone all that Jesus had done for us? Now you might say, well, Peter, I don't have a story like this man. I mean, his story is incredible. And yeah, most of us haven't been delivered from demon possession. But 1 John 5, 19 tells us that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You and I, though not demonized, we were in the clutches of the evil. Like this man, we, we were in our own filth and sin. We were spiritually dead following the prince of the air that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But God in his mercy stretched out his hand and delivered you and I from our filth and our sin. It doesn't matter if, if you were born in a Christian home and for the most part, were an obedient child. Nor does it matter that you grew up and had no Christian background and lived a wicked and immoral, filthy lifestyle. Both of you, the, the kid who grew up in the Christian home and the one who didn't and lived a wicked lifestyle, both of you are recipients of God's saving mercy and grace in Jesus. Both of you needed to be delivered from the clutches of Satan. Both of you needed to be delivered from your sin. Jesus Christ has done so much for us, brothers and sisters. But have we told anyone what he has done for us? So this is our Savior. He has the power over the storm. He has the power over the demonic and the compassion to deliver a helpless man and make him whole. And he can do the same for you. Let's pray. Father, deliver us. For anyone watching, Lord, who doesn't know you, who is under the grip of Satan, deliver them. Deliver them from the tyranny of Satan, from the tyranny of the kingdom of darkness, and bring him into the marvelous, glorious kingdom of your Son, Jesus Christ. Deliver, Lord.
and help us as your followers to desire to be with Jesus and to tell all that he has done for us. Pray this in Christ's name.